So our reading is from uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 15 this evening, uh, which is page 1182 in the Church Bible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So be uh, very sensible to keep that open, because that's the exact passage we're going to look at uh, tonight. Uh, sometime last week, uh, the phone rang, and I answered it, and I had to hand over to Anne straight away, because it was somebody asking something about dyslexia. And during the course of the conversation on the phone, the, the person at the other end um, demonstrating their alarm at something she'd just heard, used the word Jesus Christ. She wasn't praying. It was used as an expletive. This don't feel as though we've heard that for quite a while, certainly not on the phone. Now, as well as uh, potentially disturbing, distasteful, whatever word you might want to use, thinking about why somebody would feel the need to do that, uh, by which I mean cheaply use the name that is above every name, um, might be interesting, might be worthwhile to, well, why? Why that name? And why, and you may not agree with this, but why, I would say, is it only used in that way by people with no faith in him? We, we use the word Jesus Christ to describe the someone who's extremely precious to us. But used by people with no faith in him, no understanding of who he is, and, and so on. So in this series, um, it's already up, yeah, um, uh, we want to see something of what the Bible says about each of the three persons of God, the three persons of the Trinity. Now, one thing worth mentioning is this is absolutely not comprehensive, especially tonight. If we were to speak about everything the Bible says about the Son, uh, we certainly wouldn't go home tonight. I wouldn't bet you'd go home this week. Uh, so we're not, we're not going to do that, but we're going to limit ourselves to the passage that Pete's just read from, pretty much. And the aim of all this whole series, and certainly of tonight, is that our hearts are stirred to say, and, and Nathan put this in his original email to us when, when the request came through, look at our great God, look at our great God. If at the end of tonight and the end of the series we feel we can do that better and that's better, more meaningful, thrills us more, then we've, I think I'll do what you did actually, Steve. <laughs> uh, we've, we will have uh, achieved something seriously good. So last week, um, uh, Steve took us through, I can't remember where, I, there we go. It took us through a, a, a passage from James, uh, looking at the Father, God the Father, looked at the Father of light, that he's a, a, a God who doesn't change, 
that he's uh, the pure and unapproachable God. Now tonight we are going to be like the men who came to Philip in, in, the, um, in, in the, the Gospel of John. You know, they came to him and in at least one translation they come and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Well, wouldn't we all? That's why we're here tonight. We want to look at the Son of God and see him for who he is, or at least start to. Um, just a worth a note. We, we're um, looking at a small passage, five, six verses, whatever it was. Um, and it's a little bit like looking at a room full of interesting things through a keyhole. What do, you, what do you see through that keyhole? The whole room? Not at all, not at all. What you do see through that keyhole, is it true? It, yes, it is. Yes, it's true. So that, that the sort of idea of looking at a... Well, in fact, it can be said about the whole Bible that God has revealed about himself that which we need to know, where the revelation works on a need-to-know basis, uh, which maybe offends some of us that like to know everything. Uh, but we're just looking through a keyhole tonight at one small section although even through there we see truly infinite things i would say so we're not looking at everything not saying everything that could be said but what we are looking at will be true in this passage so the son of god the glorious son um the second person of the trinity the lord jesus christ uh, the whole bible points to him in the same sense that all roads lead to Rome, all verses of the Bible can be traced through uh, to Jesus. Um, it's often said that every sermon should point to him. Um, why should this be? Why are, we, why are we Christians? Steve made this point last week. Christians. Um, let's just nip in and say that there's no rivalry here at all. We are not... Um, is there's not be a contest at the end as he who sort of won out of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They are all God. Uh, we will be able to say a lot more if we had time about the Son because that's the way the Bible is, and there is probably a reason for that. If we, I can never resist the chance for a Venn diagram. Um, now there are, I say right at the outset, there are always shortcomings with doing this sort of thing. Already you think, you know what, there's three people who can all call themselves God in three persons. Okay. Uh, and if we bring in man, now first of all, man and God, what equivalent? Equivalent next to each other, same side? No, in, that's not, it's a diagram. It's supposed to be illustrating something. Not any sort of equivalence. But if we look at where we sit in that and we see where Jesus comes, the Son, we can kind of see why it should be that we hear so much about him, we know so much about him, we read so much about him, our sermons tend to be about him or tend to point to him. And obviously at this time of year, as, as Christmas approaches, it's entirely right that we, we dwell on him and his incarnation. Now, Colossians, it is uh, thought as a, a letter is probably written in response to some heretical teaching, argue, arguing that there were angelic others in that middle section. 
Paul's very clear, there is nobody else in that section. There is nobody else who is both God and man and who can be the intermediary between us. Uh, it is possible that these verses we've read or that we're looking at were um, some sort of early hymn. It's been described as a strong and moving poem praising the Lordship of Christ in relation to both creation and redemption. And we are going to be splitting up what we look at tonight into exactly that way, creation and redemption, the Lord of both. So it's about the Father's beloved Son, the Son who he says twice in the Gospel narrative, well, I mean, in different Gospels record it as well, but in Matthew, for instance, twice at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration, he is described by the Father as the Son he loves. But what we're looking at here in these verses is John Stott has described very helpfully as a sublime statement of the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ in creation and redemption in the universe and the church. So we'll look at the first of these. Uh, something seems to have gone a little bit wrong with the title, but never mind. So let's start with verse 15. The, the Son is the image of the invisible God the image of the invisible God. Let's try to get into what that might possibly mean. Image, what do we think of as a, a, an image? Something you see, something you touch, feel, look at, uh, of the invisible. Now, it's not telling us that God is a certain height, has brown, brown eyes, lives in Nazareth. It, 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 it's basically better to think of God's invisible qualities, which Paul talks about elsewhere, for instance, in Romans 1. So we're talking about seeing God's eternal power and his divine nature in Christ. So in other words, we understand and grasp and get it. So in this sense, the image which is Christ enables us to see God, to, as we've already said, see him for who he is. Now, uh, John, in, um, in his um, gospel, uh, it says, no one has ever seen God, but God the Son, who's at the Father's side. Literal translation of that will be in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. You remember when Philip came to um, a point of puzzlement and said, show us the Father, speaking to Jesus, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, you may remember, I've, uh, I, Philip, I've been here all this time and you still don't know me. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Now, not Philip, but J.B. Phillips has uh, said this. This naturally does not mean that the whole of God's infinity could be compressed into one human being. But it does mean that whenever we look at Jesus Christ, we're looking at the character of God himself. It's of the highest importance that we should see Christ and ref refuse to hold in our minds any conception of God which is incompatible with his character. So image in this sense, in these terms, are, are in terms of character or nature and not appearance, nothing to do with physical size or anything like it. Um, 
one way to help us, of course, is to see him in our Bibles. That's why we read it a lot in church and hopefully read it a lot at home. Read your Bible and keep seeing Jesus portrayed there and portraying God and his nature. So meditating on Christ in your Bible is one of the ways in which we mean see him. So moving on, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, word firstborn. Again, not, it's not in physical terms here. It's not asserting that the son had a physical um, origin, that he was created. That wouldn't make any sense at all, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, but rather that he existed eternally as son with Father and Holy Spirit in the Godhead. So no, it speaks of much more of rights and privileges of being a firstborn son, especially, and this won't cover anyone here, I think, especially the son of a monarch, the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling sovereignty. And notice how that expression is used in, used of David in the Psalms, in Psalm 89, where it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it's firstborn in that sense. And then, for in him, for in him, all things were created. So far from being created, uh, Jesus is the creator. He's the very agent of creation. Through him, John says in the start of his gospel, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And Paul to the Corinthians, there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things come and through whom we live. And there are other places, Hebrews 1 and the first few verses are very clear on this. So therefore the Son can't be the first thing created. That's an ancient Arian heresy. Since all things without exception were created by him. We end up talking some sort of nonsense with him creating himself. Um, and also, I find this very exciting, if you link John 1 with Genesis 1, we have two things. We have Jesus is the Word, and we're told in the beginning Jesus is the Word, and there was nothing made without him. He was involved in making everything. And secondly, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and he, all, all the acts of creation. And it's clear that he creates by a word. He just simply says it, and the thing happens. So he creates by a word, linking these two truths, that Jesus is the word who made everything, God made everything by his word, by a word. We can see more proof than we need, probably, that Jesus is not just the word, but he is the creative word. He is the creator. For in him all things were created. Uh, now, um, all things in heaven on earth, we go on to read visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, authorities. In, in sort of insurance terms, this is fully comp, isn't it? This covers absolutely everything. Uh, notice that all things keeps appearing. In fact, it's in these few verses, the expression all things appears five times or six if you include the word everything in verse 18. But 
but it's an expression usually meaning the cosmos, the universe. So don't worry, we're not going to have another space se uh, uh, session, but um, here it evidently includes the principalities and powers. So these are earthly and heavenly, angelic, spiritual, including fallen powers, uh, dark principalities. So think about the irony here when Pilate couldn't get an answer out of Jesus. Remember, he says to Jesus, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? What does Jesus say? He says, you'd have no power over me if it were not given you from above. And when you think of who's speaking, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? That he is above every power and, and authority and indeed has made every power and every authority. An example of the authority given to Jesus, again in the uh, book of John, we read that the Father has granted, the Son has granted Jesus authority over all people to grant eternal life. One of the reasons we come to call ourselves Christians. And then all things have been created through him and for him. All things created in, through, for him. He's both the agent and the goal of creation. The goal of creation. Think about what we mean by that. We'd like to think, probably, if we're honest, that everything's been created for us. Uh, in other words, for our enjoyment and our entertainment, presumably on the basis that there could, couldn't possibly be anything more important than me. Well, I'm afraid not. The Bible makes it very clear here that everything was made for the glory and honor of God the Son, not for us, which is interesting in the age we live in, I think. And then, um, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, before has a sense of time, certainly, like we use the word, but also rank. I don't know why it enters my head, but in Pride and Prejudice, when Lydia, the youngest, gets married to the wretched Mr. Wickham, and she goes home to visit her sisters, and they're processing down the drive or something terribly unimportant, and she tells them, no, 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 you walk behind me now, because I'm the married sister, I'm the married woman. And they all have to, they're all her older sisters, and they troop along behind her. She has to go before. It was a rank thing. She had the rank ahead of everybody else. Uh, that's maybe a rather odd illustration. But the idea of before can be used in that way, and it is here. And it links with firstborn as well. So rank and privilege of being the first. Um, and secondly... Uh, he keeps it all together. He keeps it going. Hold in, in him, all things hold together. This is when it really does start to stretch our minds, okay? So I hope you're concentrating. This is talking about the fact that Jesus didn't just make everything, but that he sustains everything. What on earth can that mean? In Hebrews, we read in the first three verses, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word sustaining all things i find it very interesting that einstein one of the things he's very well known for is that he concluded i don't know whether he was the first 
he sounds like he was, but he concluded that matter, just stuff, uh, is a form of energy. Both matter and energy are variations of the same thing. Uh, some, sometimes matter, what we think of as stuff, uh, is, is called rest energy, or I suppose energy at rest. Uh, kept going by what? Uh, do we know what it's kept going by? Well, here we're told, here we're told. The very creator sustains the matter of the universe. So moving to our second section, the Lord, he is Lord of redemption. Lord of redemption. And he, verse 18, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything we might have supremacy. Now, uh, Nathan's already made a few comments about the, uh, Jesus being the head and the church being a body, I think. He, Jesus, is the head of the church, the chosen people, his flock, us, includes us, uh, and they are like a body. It's a very um, well-used um, analogy that Paul uses in seven different places in, the, in his letters across four different letters. Uh, so we're like a body, and we're like a body that needs a head. Have you ever thought that um, you can get by with all sorts of things missing, a, a limb, even organs, pr most cases provided they can be replaced, uh, hair? Um, we can get by, by uh, without all sorts of things, but we can't get by without a head. It's just got to be there. It's got to be there, and it is a, a brilliant and effective picture of and symbol of leadership. Leadership, and we, we know that from common usage. So we were happy, happily talk about a head teacher. We know exactly what we mean by the head of a company, and it fits perfectly. So we've got supremacy of Christ here in the church as, in everywhere, as, a, as everywhere else, as in everything else. So, moving on, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Uh, the ESV version of that, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So, fullness, fullness. What, what, what do we mean by this? Well, we can link it to the picture of God's glory filling the temple in Ezekiel 44. Um, but... Let me read from the ESV Study Bible, a helpful little piece. Jesus not only bears God's glory, but all that God is also dwells in him. He possesses the wisdom, power, spirit, and glory of God. To say that all this divine fullness dwells in Jesus is to say that he is fully God. And later in the same book you've got open chapter 2 verse 9 we read the words in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily or lives in bodily form and in verse 20 we read and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven so reconciled um, let's pull that apart a bit reconciled no longer fighting no longer at war no longer at enmity uh, to reconcile somebody is to make them, two people is to make them friendly again, we might say, putting it sort of mildly. Notice it's all things again, through him to reconcile to himself, all things. 
one commentator says, uh, Peter O'Brien says, this presupposes that the unity and harmony of the cosmos have suffered a considerable dislocation, even a rupture, thus requiring reconciliation. When Adam and Eve uh, sinned, not only was the harmony between God and man destroyed, uh, but also disorder came into creation generally. They well and truly put, well, it must be the ultimate use of the expression, which I'm doing, it's not in the Bible, of putting a spanner in the works. Everything went out of joint. All of creation started to go wrong. And this probably explains a lot of the things that would seem to be mysteries to us. Tsunamis and earthquakes, which are not sort of directly caused by sin. But it would appear that the whole universe is not as God meant it to be. Uh, Paul talks of creation waiting in eager expectation, being subjected to frustration, needing to be liberated from bondage to decay, all in Romans 8. And the fall, recorded in Genesis 3, uh, led to the ground itself being cursed it, so that it will produce thorns and thistles. And gardeners, we know this, and farmers know this all too well. And it needs painful toil to yield food so that Adam and his descendants, us, uh, will eat their food, as it says, by the sweat of their brow until they return to, ground, uh, return to the ground as dust. And it's easy to see why the preacher in Ecclesiastes says everything seems meaningless. You're not joking. So when Jesus died on the cross, he, one, made peace possible between God and man, and two, he restored in principle, the harmony of the physical world, though we would have to say that this full liberation from bondage to decay, uh, we believe will come only when Christ returns. There is therefore, says John Stott, a cosmic dimension to the work of Christ. His victory over sin and over its effects is cosmic. So as part of Christ returning to restore everything, as Peter would put it in his sermon in Acts 3, and within this phrase, reconciling to himself things in heaven as well as things on earth, is the thought that he will be bringing his enemies into line. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15, it talks of disarming powers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. So powers there, disarming power, the powers of darkness, the, the devil and his angels. And uh, compare that with what um, Paul says to the Philippians in that famous passage in Philippians 2 where we talk about every knee bowing. I feel as though we've had this in a hymn tonight. Uh, every, or was it this morning? Uh, every knee bowing and every tongue confessing his lordship. So uh, against that background, consider the number of times in the Gospels that we, we find demons meekly obeying Jesus during his three-year ministry. If he said, go out and leave this man, he, they do. And interestingly, they also tend to know who he is. So uh, Jesus, the Son, has reconciled sinners to himself, and even the cosmic powers have been reconciled in the sense of being disarmed, being pacified in that way. So to finish off, um, again, still in verse 20, by, 
making peace through the blood shed on the cross. In other words, how? How has all this reconciliation been achieved? And this is how the Son, who the Father loves, the glorious Son, reconciled all things to himself. Here we come down to the Earth, planet Earth even, uh, with a real bump. Uh, we've seen in this passage what a glorious Son of God he is. Gl glories that we don't usually think of in connection to him the fact that he sustains everything is the one that always blows my mind um not not just made everything um uh we've seen that jesus is fully god we've been presented with truths that are uh, truly amazing and wonderful and and we do struggle to get our heads around but even so, we read again in Philippians 2 in that famous piece that he didn't cling to that. He laid it aside. And obviously in the next few weeks, as we've already said, we'll be remembering how he humbled himself uh, by coming to earth, first as a baby, growing to be a man. Uh, have we got another, just a reminder of that? Yes, we have. Um, uh, eventually, having lived the perfect life, he dies a cruel, shameful, criminal's death on the cross. I mean, just hold together those two facts that it was a perfect life and he died a criminal's death. And because of this, yeah, uh, because of this, uh, not in spite of it, we're told that the Father raised him to the heights of heaven, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not the same as using an expletive over the phone. This is every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, We've got such an image of God's glory in these final few words when we think about Jesus becoming man and why he did it and what it has cost for us to be saved. So in these final words, in this passage, through his blood shed on the cross, we couldn't ask for more to be able to do what our aim was, which is to just look at our great God through his glorious Son.